Episode 2, A World War Begins. Hey, Dobardan, Mulibwanji, Zdravo, how's it? Alo. I'm Ruthie. I'm from Sarajevo to Red Africa. Welcome to our podcast about the people and history of the real third world. Forget the telethons. The phrase, the third world, came about as an act of defiance when several smaller and mainly post-colonial nations decided that they did not want to choose between the Western first world or the Eastern second world, but to choose their own third way instead. Alone, they couldn't rival the superpowers, but together they could be a force to be reckoned with. The nations of the third world weren't merely poverty-stricken post-colonial backwaters. They had traditions of thousands of years of literature. They were the cradle of humankind and civilization, and they had fought hard battles for self-determination. And, even more, the events of the world today directly descend from the third world's past. These stories have been overlooked long enough, and we're going to tell them to you here. One of the most familiar stories of the third world, and I think one of the most interesting stories, involves the beginning of the First World War. The story of the assassination of the Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand on June 28, 1914 in Sarajevo, it's a well-known story, and it's well-known what happened after, the beginning of a world war of previously unknown ferocity and horror. The horrors were so intense it was known as the Great War until, 20 years later, another war of indescribable horror took place. Certain facts about the assassination are common knowledge, but not all of them are true. And there are many other facts that should be a part of the assassination discussion that are not included, particularly in the English language. And all this is, of course, based on a documentary we made last year titled The World a Stage. There was so much research involved, and it was so fascinating that the discussions just kept going even after we finished filming. We were super lucky to have the involvement of a brilliant historian, Maria Mustapich Villalavieska, to not only fact-check us, but also to bring the story to life on the screen. Maria is fantastic at telling stories. She's also multilingual, which is a huge bonus when you're telling a story about a multi-ethnic European empire. With German, English, Polish, and conversational Croatian, Maria spoke nearly all the languages needed to tell this story. And a crazy, wild ride this story is for sure. So let's get right into it. The very first thing about the story of the Archduke's assassination and the assassination of his wife is that it really wasn't terribly unusual for the time. More important people had been assassinated, and there were more profound assassination attempts that took place in the previous 100 years throughout Europe that would have on the surface seemed far more likely to spark a widespread war. For instance, the Empress of Austria herself was assassinated in Switzerland in 1898. There were seven assassination attempts against Emperor Franz Joseph alone, and one in 1853 left him with a lifelong scar on his neck. He barely survived that only because his uniform had a really thick collar. And maybe he was raised to always wear uniforms, but perhaps that kept him going with wearing the uniforms, which he did for the rest of his life. The assassinations were not the only background to consider about the imperial family either. The Habsburg court just absolutely detested Archduke Franz Ferdinand's wife, Sophie Chotek. It resulted in terrible treatment, things that result in harassment charges when they're done today, especially when they're done online. Sophie was ranked below Franz Ferdinand and considered a bad match by the Habsburg court. 
She was forced to sit away from him at official dinners. She was not allowed in the imperial box at the theater. She was not allowed to accompany him on official visits. Their children were removed from the line of succession. They weren't even allowed to call themselves Habsburgs. And as if all of that weren't bad enough, the court chamberlain, Count Montenuovo, even resorted to having her official photos adjusted to make her look older and ugly. It was a testament to the character of Sophie that she held up through 14 years of this treatment before being assassinated. But... Even knowing the background of assassinations, the decay of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and of the treatment of the Archduke and his wife, one facet rarely included in the discussions is the history of the Black Hand organization itself. Franz Ferdinand and Sophie were not the first royalty executed by the terror organization from Serbia, and they weren't the only marriage in their generation that shocked Europe's royal families. In 1903, King Alexander and Queen Draga of Serbia were horribly murdered by many of the same planners of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Now, the actual organization that the assassin Gavrilo Princip was a part of was called Mlada Bosna, Young Bosnia. Princip himself was a Bosnian Serb, but there were also members of Muslim and Croatian descent in this group. What united them was a belief that Bosnia should be free of Austria-Hungary. What that freedom would look like, self-determination, annexation with Serbia, that was not as much of a consensus among the participants. While the Mlada Bosna members carried out the assassination, they received significant support from the Black Hand, including weapons and training. Later, at trial, the head of the Black Hand, codenamed Apis, admitted to having organized the event himself. The thing to take away from the fairly bewildering number of organizations and names floating around is that these organizations acted somewhat like Venn diagrams. They were interconnected in memberships and goals to varying degrees. So we can get all pedantic and discuss the Black Hand, Norodna Odrana, Mlada Bosna, ad infinitum, all separately, or for the purposes of a less-than-university course-length podcast, we can just lump them all under one umbrella, which is my choice here. The leader of the Black Hand, codenamed Apis, again was put on trial at the end of World War I and admitted to his part in organizing the assassination, and he was sentenced to death by a firing squad. On the way to his execution on 24 June 1917, he remarked to his driver, Now it is clear to me, and clear to you too, that I am to be killed today by Serbian rifles solely because I organized the Sarajevo outrage. Of course, he said that in Serbian and not in English. Just as a side note, another trial held in Socialist Yugoslavia in 1953 removed Apis's conviction on the basis of lack of evidence. However, political currents cannot be removed from anything involving the history of the Black Hand or the assassination in Sarajevo in 1914. But even after covering imperial Habsburg politics, Mlada Bosna's ethnic composition and motivations and the murderous history of the Black Hand There's still one more huge piece in this story that does not get nearly enough attention. And it may be one of the most terrible pieces of all. We view the beginning of World War I as a fall of dominoes, and it certainly is. But is it possible that the first domino fell before Franz Ferdinand's assassination? And this is where we bring in one more major character onto the stage, Colonel Alfred Radel. Radel was born in what is now Lviv in Ukraine, one of several children in near poverty whose father was a railway clerk. The only way out of poverty for Radel was education and the Austro-Hungarian army. He managed to absolutely nail both, excelling in school and rising through the military ranks much more quickly than a non-noble generally would. Eventually, he landed on the staff of the counterintelligence branch of the Austro-Hungarian military structure. And Radel was exceptionally smart. 
He spoke his native Ukrainian, German, and Russian. He revolutionized counterintelligence procedures, including the art of interviewing subjects with a light shining in their eyes, as we see in detective movies, and he also came up with a fingerprint database. But he had two things which were tremendous shortcomings in the turn-of-the-century world of Austria-Hungary's Twilight. He was constantly in a stupendous amount of debt, trying to keep up with his peers, who had been born into rich families. And he was a homosexual. Radel had a vested interest in hiding both of these things from the military command, as both would get him unceremoniously and shamefully removed from his military commission. It was this leverage that was used by Russia to blackmail Radel into giving up every single one of Austria's military secrets by the time he was caught in 1913. He was the most prolific spy Russia had ever had under their wing, although the reports about his character written into Russian files were less than complimentary. In a strange karmic twist, chief amongst the reports he sent back was a description of the defenses and military makeup in Bosnia and Herzegovina, which he witnessed and sketched himself while on an official visit with the Austro-Hungarian military. Radel was caught in 1913, largely thanks to the improvements he himself had made to the counterintelligence system in Austria-Hungary. Rather than holding him in custody, he was given a pistol and a knowing glance and was left to commit suicide on May 25, 1913. He did so without being questioned by military intelligence as to the extent of the information he had passed to Austria-Hungary's enemies. And let me tell you, it is reported that Franz Ferdinand lost his temper in a way even worse than he usually did when he heard this had happened. First, because he was devoutly Catholic and suicide meant that Radel's soul was completely damned. But he also knew and mentioned to several that the the Austro-Hungarian government would never know the extent of the damage Radel had done. At this point, the narrative of what happened in Sarajevo and what led to the First World War starts to look a little different from the very basic narrative we learn in school. And what's more, it's starting to show even more echoes that are still bouncing around in the world today. It's very trite to say that history repeats itself. It doesn't. And it's also trite to add history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. But that part's actually true. I saw a great meme a few years ago which talked about how history is discussed. It basically said that the pundit goes back about 15 years. The political scientist goes back about 30 years, and the historian goes back to antiquity. This is a big problem with addressing long-term issues, I think. I mean, it was just a few years ago that an Orthodox priest in a crowd surrounding the Pope was shouting that Pope Francis was a heretic. The situation was literally right out of the 11th century. And may I add right here, if you have an opinion on world events, you need to be able to find whatever you're talking about on a map. Those two things, history and geography, get ignored way too often for actual solutions to global issues. But back to 1914. Here, I'd like to point out that you can still visit the hotel where Franz Ferdinand and Sophie spent the last few days of their lives just outside of Sarajevo. You can even stay in the suite that made up their rooms and eat in the restaurant area where they hosted a banquet. You can walk in and out of the door where Sophie greeted guests. And you can visit Schloss Artstetten in Austria as well, which is still owned by the descendants of this couple. But in discussing the couple's last hotel stay, it really needs to be pointed out that the Duchess Sophie was treated extremely well during her visit to Sarajevo. Normally, she was not allowed to participate in such official ceremonies with her husband. 
But not only was this allowed while in Bosnia, the Bosnians themselves really loved her and treated her with the respect she did not get in Austria itself. She visited several cultural organizations and made donations to groups from all three of the major religions in Sarajevo. The wives of the city's top Muslim citizens met with her privately and they removed their veils during this event. And even though we're getting ahead of the story here, after Sophie's death, the last act done in her name as her coffin headed out of the city was to donate money she had already earmarked to a children's home. Franz Ferdinand himself, who had not wanted to visit Sarajevo and had tried to figure out ways to avoid it before the visit, actually made a statement at their last banquet the night before their deaths that he was beginning to love Bosnia because of the treatment his wife received. The events of June 28th become even more sad knowing this. We study this as a world event, something that changed the world and caused a huge war, but it was an event that involved people, parents, and a couple that loved each other very much. We really shouldn't be letting that get lost in the shuffle. The assassination itself has been well covered and described by history courses in the pop culture of the last 100 years. Although I want to mention here that the Sarajevo portrayed in the Kingsman movie is really awful. The movie is hilarious. Despite that, I just close my eyes and don't look at that part. In any case, we won't go over that in further detail. What we will discuss are some details that add even more murkiness to the fact of the assassination. One quote that really stands out that was said by Franz Ferdinand himself was, I shall never lead a war against Russia. I shall make sacrifices to avoid it. A war between Austria and Russia would end either with the overthrow of the Romanovs or with the overthrow of the Habsburgs, or perhaps the overthrow of both. There was a lot of support for a preemptive war against Serbia by many in the Austrian government. Franz Ferdinand didn't support that idea at all, and he lost his famous temper in such discussions more than once. And it turned out to be prophetic. The end of World War I saw the end of both the Russian Imperial Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and in the case of the Russian Imperial family, a shocking murder. But Franz Ferdinand had an ambitious plan for the Austro-Hungarian Empire when he took the throne, one which could have changed the empire's fate completely. The Archduke had visited the United States in 1893. He was rather dismissive of most of the country, viewing the people as uncouth and too familiar, and the vast expanse of land is too wild compared to Austria. But he took quite a lot of inspiration from the Federalist nature of the government. After returning home, he developed an idea to modernize the Austro-Hungarian Empire that was referred to as the United States of Greater Austria. It would have given the Slavic areas of the empire an unprecedented level of say in their own affairs and may have countered the growing pan-Slavic influence. Of course, none of this is proof of anything. It does, however, give some food for thought about the general beliefs of the assassination attempts and what may have been going on behind the scenes. And then there was the funeral. Remembered by history for his ridiculous hatred of the Duchess Sophie, Count Montenuovo doubled down on the funeral for the heir to the empire's throne. He cut short the viewing times for the coffins, leaving many in Vienna who wished to pay their respects unable to do so. He refused to allow any honors for the murdered duchess, whose coffin was lower, cheaper, and less adorned than that of the archduke, to a remarkable degree. Foreign dignitaries were given no time to attend the funeral, even though Kaiser Wilhelm, a personal friend of the murdered couple, attempted several times to get around the decree limiting foreign dignitaries' attendance. Finally, Montenuovo persuaded the emperor to make a further decree that the nobility would not accompany the coffins of the deceased to the train that would take them to their final burial spot at Schloss Artstetten. This decree proved to be too much. 
when about a hundred nobles, including the new heir, Karl, showed up to walk silently and respectfully with the Archduke and his wife on their final journey. Any podcast on the assassination of Franz Ferdinand would have to spend hours to get into the details fully, and we just don't have that much time. But what I hope we've done is to introduce some new information that may get people thinking not only about what the truth of 1914 may actually have been, but also to look more critically at the things held as truth today. Whatever we see up front, whatever the story is, there's always more to it. And it's the left out details that can continue to echo through the future. We're going to head to Africa for our next episode and talk about the beginnings of the South African political party we now call the African National Congress, the ANC, and in particular, a brilliant man named Sol Plotje, who has been largely swept aside in South African history. We'll see you next in January 1912 in Bloemfontein, South Africa. Bravo, tselane bueno, okay. Ciao, au revoir, vidimose, what's in.